Hi, Downtown Church. Pastor Steve here. It's good to be with you all and look forward to tonight's sermon that Brooks will give. Before we do that, had a quick and yet important announcement. We are talking about opening uh, services again as a church and wanted to let you know that Grace Downtown will reopen for in-person services starting July 12th. That's Sunday, July 12th. Wanted to let you know that's coming up. There are a couple of quick details. We will have one service, as we usually do downtown, at 5 p.m., and that will be a masks-optional service. So if you feel more comfortable wearing a mask, uh, you're encouraged to wear one. Uh, And so uh, it's a masks-optional service at 5 p.m. For children, we will not have children's ministry classes uh, right away. So families are going to be sitting together during service. We want you to be aware of that, and then we'll reassess that uh, a few weeks in. For worship, we're going to have music. We're going to be able to be together to hear music, but uh, to stop the spread of the virus, especially with singing, we will not have congregational singing as we start meeting again on July 12th, though there will be music uh, in service. And sanitation, for health precautions, we'll have the building sanitized before service, before people show up, and we'll be using some social distancing protocols at service, and you'll be receiving information about that in the weeks ahead, and there will also be instructions when you show up at service. We'll provide some future communication, continue to share details of how service will work, what you can expect in the coming weeks. You can visit graceb3.org for the latest reopening information. Everything that we're doing, we're really striving to make sure that we have a place where we can meet together, but we're meeting together in a safe way that's loving towards one another, where we accommodate one another, and we're also trying to be safe as a body and safe within the community and loving towards the community. So we really want to make this a time when we can come together for worship, but do that in a loving way towards one another and be loving towards the community. Uh, We'll turn to the sermon tonight and hear from God's Word and look forward to worshiping with you when we're able to be together again. So, Father, we want your name to be hallowed. We want your name to be lifted up, to be exalted. We want your kingdom to come. We want your will to be done. And, Father, that's an impossibility apart from a work of the Spirit in our hearts uh, for us to be, first of all, forgiven for our sins, cleansed of our sins, and also to walk with you in humility, bearing with one another in love. So, Father, speak to us through your word. Uh, have your way in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're uh, in the middle of a series in the book of Exodus, and we are going to take a two-week uh, pause on that and discuss some really important cultural topics. Uh, specifically, we're going to talk about repentance this morning. Um, I know you're very aware of the news and all that's going on with the riots and with the protests and with all the social upheaval. And one thing that I'd like to point out is that since George Floyd uh, was murdered, when he was killed, his death has galvanized, united all people, all people under one banner. And that banner is a banner of repentance. Now, If you're listening to me, some of you are thinking, I don't understand what you're getting at. Because to me, it seems like if we were united under the banner of repentance as a nation, that would naturally then lead to revival. You would be right. But let me qualify what I mean by under a banner of repentance. Everyone is calling for someone else 
to repent. That does not lead to revival. That does not lead to the revival. Here's what I've seen on the news. Here's what you have seen on the news. And if you just peruse social media, here's all the different groups calling for other groups to repent. Now, before I put these up on the screen, let me um, give you a disclaimer. These are not things I'm calling people to repent of. These are things I'm reading that other people are calling other groups to repent of. So you ready? Calls for repentance from the news and social media. First of all, the police should repent of brutality. Violent protesters should repent of their lawlessness and their violence. Nonviolent protesters should repent of disrespecting the country. Non-protesters should also repent of being silent. Liberals should repent of calling everything racism. Conservatives should repent of denying racism. Churches that are silent on racism, they should repent of that silence. Churches that are verbal and calling out racism should repent of calling that out and get back to doctrine. Whites should repent of their white privilege, and blacks should repent of perpetuating a culture of victimization. I'm going to guess that right now, almost everyone that's watching this message is deeply offended, asleep, or the Holy Spirit is working in you. One of those three. One of those three. Uh, You can look at that list, and if you're paying attention, you've heard almost all of those. You've probably stated or at least thought some of them yourself. And what we need to do as a body of believers that's been united in Christ, we need to think very, very biblically about this subject of repentance and what should be repented of. In Ephesians chapter 2 Verses, or chapter 4, rather, verses 21 through 24, the Apostle Paul writes this. Assuming that you've heard about him and you were taught in him the truth that is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So, here's the thing. If you are a follower of Christ, then you must repent. That's how you became a Christian. We were saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and that involves repenting. The first message Jesus preached after his 40 days of, of, in the wilderness being tempted, the first message he preached in, in Mark chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, is repent and believe the gospel. You cannot be a Christian And not repent. You repent when you become a Christian. And then, as Martin Luther said, all of life is repentance. As the Holy Spirit brings to bear conviction over sin, daily sin that we noticed that we didn't notice the day before, it is our responsibility to confess that to the Lord. And he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. So what we're going to look at over the next two weeks, we are going to look at the subject of putting off, that is repenting. What should we repent of? What shouldn't we repent of? That's what Paul means. Put off your former self.
to repent. And then next week, we are going to look at the counter to that, which is to put on, to put on the new self. Paul says, put off the old, put on the new. So today, we're going to look at the subject of repentance, what we are turning from. Next week, we're going to look towards what we are turning to. See, repentance is always turning away from one thing and towards something else, away from sin and towards righteousness. So today, we are going to look at putting off. What should we repent of? Matthew chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7, verses 4 and 5, Jesus says this, How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the log out of someone else's. So Jesus is saying, you have to start. Where does repentance start? It starts with my own heart. It doesn't start with finding out where everyone else in the country, where everyone else in my family, where everyone else in my church needs to repent, but rather it starts with this. What is the sin in my heart? Holy Spirit, please identify that. Search me, O Lord, and show me any wicked way that I need to repent of. And that's what Jesus is telling the disciples here and the Pharisees who are listening. Start with yourself. Take a look at the log in your own eye. Take that out. Then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So here's what we're going to cover this morning. It's a question of repentance. That's the title of this message. What do we repent of? Three things that are going to guide us. Number one, we're going to look back. How did we get here culturally in this moment, 2020? How did we get here with this racial strife, with this, uh, this polarization of our nation? How did we get here? So that's a look back. Then secondly, we're going to look inward. What's my contribution What's my contribution? Where is my heart not in line with the gospel? How am I not keeping in step with the Spirit? How am I not living my life in accordance with what Christ has done for me? That's a look inward. And then we will finish with a look upward. How is Christ my and your only hope? And how does the gospel make unity in the body of Christ and righteousness possible? That's what we're going to look at. So let's first of all go back. Let's go back. And we're going to go back by finding our way back to Exodus, the current series we're in. Now we're going to jump ahead to a text that we'll cover in a number of weeks from now. But I want us to start with the beginning of the Ten Commandments. So if you have your Bibles handy on your phone or your print Bible, please open them to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. In chapter 20, the Ten Commandments. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Okay, let's just stop right here for a second. What we have is God has delivered 
the nation of Israel out of Egypt, out of bondage. He has selected these people for himself. He has made them his covenant people. He says, I have taken you from Egypt. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. Furthermore, you shall not make for yourself an idol. Now, when we think of idols and we're looking in the Old Testament, typically we think of carved, graven images. An idol is simply anything which is a substitute for God. So in, in, in Moses' day, they had literal graven images. In many parts of the world today, they have literal graven images. But it, lest you believe that idolatry is a thing of the past, it's a thing that superstitious people engage in, idolatry is, is natural to every human heart. It's, it's simply taking something which is created, a gift from God, and elevating it to a status of ultimate worth or ultimate value. It's placing anything over God. You could place your family over God. You could place your job over God. You could place money over God. You could place sex, food, ad nauseum. You just keep adding. So anything could be a potential idol. And here's what God tells the Israelites. Listen, I chose you for myself. I made you my covenant people. Now, understand that if you walk in idolatry, if you walk in idolatry, what does the text say here? The text says... For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands who love me and keep my commandments. I'm going to back up just for a second because I skipped over it. Didn't mean to. I want to let you know that part of what we're going to be talking about here is we're going to look to the past, the sins of our fathers, our forefathers, in terms of slavery, segregation, and how that brought us the mess that we're in now. What I'm not going to be able to do is cover a great deal of our history and how the church has failed to address that. I do want to make available a resource for anyone who is watching, and that is to go to our website, graceb3.org, and you can click on our sermons, and you can search The Root of Racism. That is a four-part series that we preached in 2017. Or you can go to our YouTube channel, graceb3, and just simply... Uh, type in into the search engine, the root of racism. There are four messages, December 3rd, December 12th, the 17th, and the 24th, uh, actually the 31st, all from, all from 2017 that are going to dive into that topic in great detail. So many of the things that I would like to address, I already have in terms of what we mean when we're talking about racism. So back to the text here. Back to the text. When we are looking... Went too far, went the wrong way, and here we go. Back to the text. The sins of the fathers are visited to the third and the fourth generation. Now, if you are an American, and I'm going to guess that most everyone watching this broadcast, this taped message, is an American, uh, we are highly um, individualized. We view everything from the, from the standpoint of the rugged individualist. That's what America is all about, the American dream, that each person has been given an opportunity to use their talents, their treasure, and their time to make a life for themselves as they pursue the pursuit of happiness. That's the American way, right? Now, Americans don't like this particular verse. They don't like this particular verse, that the sins of the father should be visited 
upon the children to the third and the fourth generation. Here's how Americans tend to think. Americans tend to think this way. Westerners, in particular Americans, tend to think this way. I will be rewarded for my hard work and my behavior. And I will be punished for my laziness and my lawlessness. As far as someone else's sin, that's on them. That has no bearing on me personally. It'd be nice if that were true, but that's not the way the world works. It's never worked that way. It's never worked that way. What God is saying is, listen, you as a nation need to understand this. If your, if your descendants at any point in time should, should go astray and they should abandon me and they should start to worship idols, please understand this. They will be held culpable for their own sin. But their sins, the consequences of those sins, will be visited upon the third and the fourth generation. This is just the way the world works. It worked that way when God gave the Israelites the Ten Commandments, and it works that way in 2020. Idolatry has repercussions not only on the idolater, but their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren after them. You cannot escape this reality. Now, if you are thinking that what God is saying is that you as an individual are culpable or guilty of your grandparents' sins, no, that is not what this is saying. I am not guilty of my father's sins, nor am I guilty of my grandfather's sins, nor am I guilty of my great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather's sins. However, the sins of our ancestors do create the dunghill that we currently live in today. There is no getting around that. And this is clearly what Moses is teaching. The sins of the fathers will be visited upon the third and the fourth generation. Now, just let us walk through an example from Scripture that teaches us how we, the generations after our forefathers are to deal with sins which we personally did not commit, but we are living with the consequences. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. Let me give you some context here. In Daniel chapter 9, what you have is for, for 400 years, starting with uh, uh, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, about that time, Israel started to dart into idolatry. They started to sprint into idolatry. There was civil war. You had the northern kingdom. You had the southern kingdom. And both of them were steeped in idolatry. So for 400 years, 14 generations, 14 generations, God called Israel to turn and to repent, turn and to repent from their idolatry. And he warned them again and again, Isaiah, uh, Ezekiel, you name it, all of these prophets, they warned them again and again and again. And finally, finally, he said, if you do not repent, I will wipe Jerusalem clean like a plate. You just wipe the things off the plate. And sure enough, he said, I will take you. You will be taken captivity into captivity into a land that is not your own. So when Daniel was a young teenager in Jerusalem, that prophecy, after 400 years of rep- warnings and warnings and warnings, God's patience was finally over and judgment fell upon the nation of Israel and in particular the city of Jerusalem. And they were invaded by Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, and the Israelites were taken captive. 
Daniel, an aristocrat, and a number of people from the, from the king's high court, uh, noblemen, if you will, were taken as slaves back to Babylon. He was castrated, he was made a eunuch, and he was forced to serve in the king's court. Now, this prophecy said that you would be taken in captivity for 70 years, and after the 70 years, a remnant would be brought back to Jerusalem. So now Daniel is an old man. The 70 years are up, and he remembers... He remembers the prophecy from Jeremiah just before the exile that said the exiles would return. And I want us to pay particular attention to how Daniel prayed regarding the sins of his forefathers, which he did not commit. But they did create his situation. The fact that he was in exile was due to no fault of his own, and was definitely due to the sins of his ancestors. So let's look at how he prayed and see if we can find a parallel in terms of how we should respond in our own context in this day and age. So Daniel, chapter 9, starting in verse 4. I prayed to the Lord my God, and I made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and we have done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened. Okay, stop. Let's just take a look right now. What pronouns is Daniel using as he is praying to God? They are plural and they are first person. First person plural. He's saying we We, and you say, wait, 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 wait. I've read the book of Daniel. Daniel, you're not guilty of idolatry. You're not culpable. It's not because of you that the exile happened. And yet Daniel identifies with the sins of his ancestors. Keep reading. Verses 6 and 7. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. But to us, but to us, open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all of Israel, to those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. Verse 8. To us... O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. Okay, what do you see here in this text? If we're going to think biblically about our current context and our current situation, we need to understand how our forefathers from Scripture thought and think along those lines. This is so foreign to a Westerner. It is completely antithetical to how an American thinks. But what Daniel is doing is he is realizing that the cultural mess that he is living in as an exile in Babylon, although he did not commit idolatry, is due specifically to his father's, his grandfather's, and his forefather's idolatry. And he has no problem understanding that God holds a nation responsible for a nation's sins. And Daniel happens to be a member of that nation. We don't think that way as Americans. 
We look at our current situation and we say, listen, I haven't done anything. I'm I'm not a racist. I haven't committed any atrocities. I didn't segregate anybody. I've never owned any slaves. Well, of course you didn't own any slaves. Of course you didn't segregate anybody. But our ancestors did, and that gives us the current context. Daniel was not an idolater, and yet he still identifies with a nation of idolaters. That is biblical. Understand the difference between not being culpable and experiencing the consequences of someone else's sin. You can't have both of those. Daniel was not guilty of his forefathers' sins, but he was experiencing the consequences. Does it make sense? And in humility, he identifies with them. And he cries out in humility for, for forgiveness for a nation. And God honors that prayer. And he will honor anyone, any nation that humbles themselves and seeks the Lord their God. That's why God told Solomon when he dedicated the temple in, in, uh, in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. I just want to plead with you to analyze your own heart and look at the church. By the way, just a little note here. This message is not directed towards the world. This text is not speaking to the nation of America. This text is speaking to Christians who are God's covenant people. But God calls us to humble ourselves. And I look at Facebook and I look at the news and what I see is a lack of humility. I see everyone calling someone else to repent. And God says, Brooks, how about you just turn your eyes on your own heart and ask yourself where you ought to repent. And it starts with looking back. It starts with looking back. So as we look back, the sins of the Israelites was literal idolatry. They worshiped Baal. They worshiped the foreign gods, the gods of the Canaanites all around them. And as we look back in our own nation and our history of quote-unquote idolatry, what are the idols that our forefathers worshiped? Money, greed, prosperity, the American dream. 1619, all the way to 1863, Because of economic prosperity, slavery was the law of the land, at least the southern states. But it was allowed. It was, even though our forefathers in the Constitution, or in 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 the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence, it says that all men are created equal and given certain inalienable rights. Well, that might have been true in theory, but it didn't work in practice because a certain population was not even given the right to be considered human beings and could be sold. And, and our economy was, was built upon that. George Washington himself owned slaves. And while he technically said that he was against slavery, he said that he could not become economically viable without them. And he waited until he could will those, free those slaves after he died. So yes, Our forefathers were great men. They were geniuses. They had a vision. They had a dream for a nation. And yet, and yet, the sins of our ancestors are upon us. From 1619 in Jamestown to 1863, slavery was legal and the law of the land. 
And it wasn't until a national bloodletting during the Civil War where a million Americans lost their lives that slavery was finally abolished in 1865. But then from 1865 to 1968, in the South, you had segregation as official policy of the land. Segregation, where blacks could not, could not, and were not allowed to worship with whites, to go to school with whites, to ride uh, in the same seat on a bus as whites, to get drink from the same drinking fountain as whites. Everything was segregated under Jim Crow in the South. And in the North, there was economic segregation by funneling those who were fled the South, Jim Crow, into the North. They were funneled into the poorest parts of towns, and then the banks would draw lines around certain black neighborhoods and say, no one in this area, in this neighborhood, can receive a loan. And so there was a form of economic suppression. So even in the North, where, where, where there was not segregation, you still had systemic, state-sponsored racism. And then, of course, 1968, the civil rights movement swept through, and then everything got better. Or did it? Or did it? Let's go back to the text. Remember? Remember what what Moses said here, what God said to Moses? He said, the sins of the fathers, the sins of the fathers would be visited to the third and the fourth generation. There are many of my white brothers and sisters in Christ who look back to 1968, and even to, uh, to the election of Barack Obama. We elected a black president. Everything's better now. There was a civil rights movement. All of those things which you mentioned, the sins of our ancestors, all of those things have been stricken down by law. It is illegal to discriminate. It is illegal to redline economically. It is illegal to segregate. Therefore, therefore, everything is better now. Look at Exodus Chapter 20, verse 5 and 6. Is it better now? The sins of the fathers are visited, what? To the third and the fourth generation. So yes, legislation was passed in 1968 and previously that banned those practices. But did hearts change? Did hearts change? When I grew up as a kid, from the time I was in kindergarten to the time I was in third, ga- third grade, my father worked for the Maytag company and he was moved all around the country. And for those four years, we lived in Memphis, Tennessee. In Memphis, Tennessee, as a young man, kindergarten through third grade, up until 1976, we lived in an all-white neighborhood. Middle class, we lived in a townhouse. It wasn't a, it wasn't a single family home, but everyone in my neighborhood was, was all white. Everyone I played with was white. I went to school at Cromwell Elementary School, which was one block from where I lived. So every morning I would get up and I would walk to school and I would go to school. And all of my friends that lived in my neighborhood that I played with after school, they went to a different school. And when I went to school, which was one block from my home, everyone that was in my class, almost everyone, there were three white children in my class, and the rest were African American. How is that? How is it that everyone in my neighborhood, all of my friends, all of these white children in Memphis, Tennessee, how is it that they didn't go to the same school, which was right in their neighborhood? Well, here's what happened. Because of civil rights in the 1960s, 
segregation was banned, and then they recognized that, that the, the schools that the, that the black students went to in their own neighborhoods were so run down because of the tax revenue and the tax base were so awful, there was no, not an equal opportunity for them in terms of education. So they instituted busing. And they began to bust those students into the white neighborhoods, the more affluent neighborhoods, where they could go to school. And how did the white parents respond to all that? They pulled all of their students out of the public schools and they created their own schools because they would not have their children going to school with black kids. Now, understand, the laws had already been changed. We're no longer talking about legislation. You cannot legislate love. You cannot legislate hate. You can't legislate it away. You can't. So yes, the sins of the forefathers were axed. Segregation is illegal. Slavery is illegal. Uh, discrimination is illegal. And yet, those individuals, those individuals, those kids that grew up, do you think that just because laws have changed, their hearts have changed? Think this through. Here's the thing. Sin is systemic. Pride is systemic. Greed is systemic. Ideologies are systemic. We tend to think of ourselves more highly than we're ought, and once we're old enough to identify with a people group, whether it be a people group that's due to a color, color of skin, or a political ideology, or a denomination, or an economic status, we begin to think, not only am I better than other people, but my group is better than other people, and all other groups are a threat to my group. So I don't tend to think in terms of racism, because here's the thing. Biblically, biblically here's what the Bible teaches about race. There aren't races. There aren't races. All people have descended from one man. Therefore, there is technically one race with an incredible variety of skin colors. But there is only one race. It's called the human race. And yet, there are different ethnic groups. There are different cultures. There are different tribes. And those tribes war against one another. And those tribes persecute one another. And those tribes inflict injustice upon one another. And what we see in Exodus chapter 2 is that the sins of the forefathers are visited the third and the fourth generation. So do the math. 1968. How many generations are we from 1968? Can you count? I'll do the math for you. One. One. I was born in 1967. The 1968 race riots in the summer were the summer that I was one years old. We're only one generation out from, from formalized oppression of a specific people. A specific people. Now, you may not enjoy hearing that, but that is the gospel truth. And when Moses received the Ten Commandments, he was told, Listen, Moses, your generation goes off on an idolatry kick. Understand that it's going to have repercussions for generations to come. So just acknowledge that. Just acknowledge that. No, that doesn't make you culpable for your sins of your ancestors. It does mean that we are responsible to deal with the mess that they left us. That's what it means. Okay, enough of looking backwards. Now let's look inwards. Well, what can I repent of? What can we repent of? First of all, I can humble myself and I can do what Daniel did. I can confess corporate sin. I can go before God and I can say to God, God, I recognize that this mess that we are in, I'm not culpable, but I am an American. 
and the nation that I love and the nation that I will celebrate our Independence Day in a week or two weeks from now, that nation is guilty of heinous sin. And I want to acknowledge that to you. And I want to acknowledge the fact that, Lord, our current situation is because of that. And I confess the sins of our nation collectively from hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And even today, I can acknowledge that. Even if I don't understand my personal role, I can, like Daniel, in solidarity, identify with the generation's past. I can humble myself. I can also repent of my pride. I can also repent of my pride. Let me clear something up. No news to anyone. I'm white. I'm 52 years old. And I have heard on the internet, I've seen people do this, heard people called out to repent of their whiteness, to repent of white privilege. Let me be very clear. As a white person, I am privileged. I recognize that my status is not exclusively due to my hard work and my gifting, but it's also due to the things which are intangible, which were given to me that I, that are, that are, that, that I didn't have anything to do with. I won't repent of those, nor should you. You should never repent of your privilege unless you gain that privilege by stepping on the back of someone else. But if you were born with intangible things which are advantageous to you, that's not something to be repented of. But here is what you should repent of. Pride. Let me get a little more specific. As a 52-year-old white man, if I attribute my success to my talents and to my hard work, and then I look at the life of a 25-year-old black man from the south side of Chicago, and I look at the moral squalor that he's in and his poor situation, and I attribute his poor situation to the fact that he didn't use his talents, and I attribute his poor situation to the fact that he is lawless, the fact that he doesn't have morals, the fact that he is this, the fact that he is that, and I don't recognize that all of the advantages that I had he didn't have, that's pride. I can repent of that, and you should too, if that's how you think. Have you ever looked at a black man or a black woman or a segment of society or a neighborhood and said, those people are that way because they don't work, because they are this, because they do that. That is pride. It is group pride. It is arrogance to think that your group established their success exclusively because of hard work, while all other groups have not established that because they're lazy and they didn't work. That's just flat-out pride. There's nothing wrong with me saying that I am grateful to God for the privilege of having two parents, that I am grateful to God for being raised in a middle-class culture where I never went to bed hungry. There is no no way am I going to repent of the fact that I had adequate education and opportunities. I'm grateful to God for those things. But I dare not look at those things and then think that other people who didn't have them, the reason that they fail to succeed is exclusively because they have chosen not to succeed. That's arrogance. And that's pride. And I can and should repent of that. I can also repent of apathy. I can also repent of apathy. You and I can repent of not weeping with those who weep. 
we can look and we can see our black brothers and sisters in Christ as they experience hardship that I've never experienced, and we can have compassion and we can mourn when they mourn, as opposed to looking at their situation and thinking, well, if they weren't so lawless, that wouldn't happen. Can we just weep with those who weep? Can we mourn with those who mourn? That is a command of Scripture, Romans chapter 12, verse 15. We can repent of apathy and failing to weep with those who weep. I can personally repent of not following through with the racism series that I did in 2017. I don't know if any of you remember that, but some of you might. I remember specifically saying that, and we're going to follow this up with some forums and some discussions and some small groups so we can explore and understand this situation better. Well, you know what happened? Nothing. Do you know why nothing happened? Because I got busy and things got better. And that's just a reflection. You know, it's a reflection of my apathy because I'm not suffering and I don't see the suffering of other people out of sight, out of mind. And so here we are, 2020. Oops, forgot to follow through with that. I can repent of my apathy as a pastor in failing to follow through. And I can repent of refusing to see that with privilege, and I am privileged, comes responsibility. Do you know Abraham was privileged? God chose him uniquely out of a people. Did you know that Isaac was privileged? Did you know that Jacob was privileged? Did you know that, that Joseph was privileged? Did you know that the nation of Israel is privileged? Privilege is not to be repented of. But when God privileged uh, Abraham and said, I have chosen you among all people to make you a great nation, he says, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you for I've created you to bless all nations through your offspring. Do you understand that? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, Jake, he's saying, listen, Abraham, you're privileged, but that privilege is not to be used exclusively for yourself. That privilege is to be used to bless the nations, all peoples, all ethnic groups, all tribes. With privilege comes responsibility. Do not repent of privilege, but repent rather of apathy, of pride, and failing to realize with privilege comes responsibility. And then I can repent of tribalism. Tribalism. What do I mean by that? I, tribalism is the group that you identify with. Everyone identifies with a group. You notice that small children, they play together and they don't see, see things in terms of terms of groups, but they, they are individually sinful. You have noticed this. If you're parents, you recognize your children as toddlers are individually sinful, but they don't, they don't think in terms of group think. But as they get older, they begin to look around. They begin to think, hey, I'm like this person. I'm like this group. And you see this in particular in junior high, and you start to affinity. These are your affinity groups. And this is, not only do you have an individual will, but now you have a group will, and you tend to identify with them, and you tend to derive your worth and your value from this group. And then you become adult, and it becomes more sophisticated. Sometimes these lines are along skin color, but not always. And so then you begin to associate with a specific tribe and that tribe becomes your identity and then that's the tribe you will defend. Right or wrong? Right or wrong? So you can repent of tribalism. Well, how do I know if I'm guilty of tribalism? Here's one that's very easy to identify. Political tribes. Political tribes. You ready? How many of you have done this? You're more outraged of the sins of another tribal leader 
then you are the sins of your own tribal leader. Let's just, let's get specific. Not with names, but with a, with a specific sin. You look at the other group and their tribal leader lies all the time. It's their native tongue. And so what do you say? Those liberals lie. Liberals lie. Or, or those conservatives are all liars. But, but then when your tribal leader speaks and speaks the native tongue of lying, it's an anomaly. And somehow it's okay. So in other words, we become outraged at the sins of other tribes, but we give our own tribes a pass. This is the way the world has been working since there were more than two people. And that is something to be repented of because, as, 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 as Paul said, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted through deceitful desires. Understand that individualized sin, which we all have, corrupts us and we are deceived into thinking that our righteousness comes from identifying with a particular tribal group, be it a skin color tribal group, an economic or socioeconomic tribal group, or a political tribal group, you name it. And we look at those tribal groups that we're in and we give them passes on all sorts of things. And yet we look at the other tribal groups and we say, those tribal groups, they need to repent. How many of you have looked at someone from another tribal group and attributed one individual's sinful trait to the whole group? Well, that's true of those people. You know, those people, they're all liars. They're all lazy. But yet when you look at members from your own tribe and they lie and they're lazy, you call them out individually for their sin. Well, Fred, he's a liar. He's lazy. But you never attribute it to your whole group. That's tribalism. Whether that tribalism is, is specified by color, ideology, it doesn't matter. It's to be repented of. It's to be repented of. Now, we have to move on. So we look back. How do we get into the mess we're in? We look inward. What can I specifically repent of? But let me touch on one more thing. Why is this so hard? Why is this so hard? Jesus says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Here's why it's so hard. We fear that if I admit my sin or the sin of my tribe, I'll give someone else or some other tribe the advantage. I've been doing marital counseling for a long time, and you know what is harder than anything else? Is to get a spouse to confess their sin to their spouse that they're not reconciled to. Why? They think that that individual will use that confession as a knife, as a weapon, as a bartering tool to get what they want. And they might be right. So we have a reluctance to be open and vulnerable to confess our sin or to call our own tribe out for the sins of our tribe because if we do, well, the other tribe might take advantage and they might get the other hand. That's exactly the problem. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. Take the log out. He said, what if they take that log and they will it into spirit and they run it through my heart? Then you'll be with me. Then you'll be with me. And you will have experienced the same type of suffering that I experienced when I went to the cross. But to follow Christ means to lay down your life and die. It means to be vulnerable. It means to die to self and to stop standing up for my rights to the exclusion of the rights of other people. Christ died on the cross so that I might be cleansed and forgiven of my sin and that I might walk in righteousness. And that requires daily confession. Daily confession. We can repent of tribalism. And yes, it's hard. And there's only one hope for us. And that's not to look back. 
And that's not to look inward. We have to start there. We have to look back to understand the mess we're in. We have to look inward to understand what's my contribution and how am I contributing to this mess. Yes, those are important. But if you only look back and you only look in, then you will be given to despair because it will drive you to a state of hopelessness because you recognize that you are far worse than you ever thought you would ever be. Or you will not be driven to despair. You will be delivered into what is far worse, and that is denial. And you will look in the mirror and you will say, it is not me. It is not my sin. It's not my tribe. It's not my tribe's sins. It's their sin. It's the other tribe's sin. And Jesus is like, oh my gosh. There's no hope. Either you'll be driven to despair or you'll be driven to denial. If all you do is look back. And all you do is look in. That's why you can't stop there. You have to look up. You have to look up. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12 says, fix your eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father and is currently interceding for each one of us. We must look not to the past. We must look not to the sins of the present, but we must look to the author and perfecter of our faith who, unlike Daniel, did not merely identify in solidarity with the sins of a nation. He took those sins upon himself. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, the Apostle Paul says, he who knew no sin for our sake became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see that Daniel is foreshadowing what Christ did? Daniel said, we are given to open shame. It is our sin. It is we have sinned. We have fallen. Jesus Christ doesn't simply identify. He takes those sins upon himself. Jesus Christ took the sins of all of Israel, all of their idolatry upon himself. Jesus Christ took the sins of our forefathers, the United States of America, upon himself. Jesus Christ took the sins of Jim Crow and economic segregation upon himself. Jesus Christ took the sins of those people in Memphis, Tennessee, who took their kids out of their schools because they didn't want to be around black kids. He took those sins upon himself. He took the sins of the individuals right now watching this broadcast who look at their own tribe and refuse to acknowledge the sins of their tribe while acknowledging and calling out the sins of all other tribes. He took that pride and he took that arrogance upon himself. And that's why he uttered from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because God cannot look upon sin. God cannot, a holy God cannot dwell in the presence of a people who are given over to idolatry and Jesus Christ embraced that for the joy that was set before him. For the joy that was set before him. He took the sins of my ancestors and your ancestors and my tribe and your tribe and he bled out on the cross and when he was done, he said, it is finished. And if you know Jesus Christ, there's hope. There's hope for you as an individual. Because Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant promise having no hope and without God in the world. Do you understand that right now, if you are without Christ, you have no hope and I don't care what tribe you're in? 
Republican, Democrat, liberal, conservative, anarchist, black, white. It doesn't matter. If you don't have Christ, you are alienated from God and you are without hope in this world. But God does not want you to stay there. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and is broken down in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and he might reconcile us both to God through his body in the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Do you understand what Paul is saying? He's saying that you and I as individuals, as members of various ethnic tribes all over the world, as individuals, we were alienated from God. And we were hostile to God. And his hostility against our sin remained on us. And we were by nature, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, by nature, objects of his wrath. But God's removed that hostility in becoming sin for us. And Christ bore the wrath of the Father on the cross and removed that hostility. And he has made those two people one. One tribe. One tribe. And that is the tribe of Jesus Christ. And they have been covered with the blood of the Lamb and have received his righteousness. Have you been reconciled to Christ? It begins with your personal receiving of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The scriptures say, it is by grace through faith that we have been saved, not by works so that no one may boast. And it says that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Call on the name of the Lord today. Cry out to him. Repent, turn from your sins. Receive the free gift of salvation that comes through what Jesus Christ has accomplished on the cross. Do it today. Second Corinthians chapter six, the apostle Paul says, for now is the day of the Isaiah's salvation. Do not receive the grace of the Lord in vain. You've received, you have heard the gospel. God is calling you to by grace through faith, enter into a relationship with him and become part of that one tribe. Take that opportunity today and by faith enter into a covenant relationship. And then lastly, whose tribe do you most identify with? As you get on social media and you write your posts or you read this blog or you listen to the news, are you as angered by your own tribe's sin as you are the sins of other tribes? If you're not, it shows that you're guilty of idolatry of tribalism. But here's the good news. You can repent. You can repent of that sin. You can change. You can turn to the Lord. You can confess that. You can say, Lord Jesus, I confess that my conservatism or my liberalism or my whiteness or my blackness or my richness or my poorness, I've made that my identity. I've worn that as the banner and I have not worn you, Christ, and your righteousness as my banner. And I repent of that. And you know what the scriptures say? He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. And when we do that, we no longer walk in darkness. Our eyes are open and we can begin to love and serve people that are very different from us. I'm 52. I'll be 53 tomorrow. 
I'm very white. And most of you are too. But if you are like me, and you are white, and you are in your 50s, and you are, in a ma- you are a male, do you understand that you have more in common with a 25-year-old black man from the south side of Chicago, if he is in Christ, than you do with your non-Christian golfing buddies? Just let that sink in. Those individuals will not be seated around the marriage supper of the Lamb with you unless Christ should do an intervening work in their heart. But that black man in Chicago will. And until we receive Christ as Savior and live under the banner of his righteousness as our tribe, we'll never be able to fully understand the pain and suffering that someone else from another tribe goes through. We'll never be able to empathize. We'll never be able to care for them. And we'll be relegated to a life of slavery where all we can do is defend ourselves and defend our tribe and not the cause of the gospel. As we close, I would encourage you to just pray with me. I don't know of a time in the history of our nation where this verse is not more applicable than it is right now. God told Solomon when he built the temple for him, when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts devour the land and I send pestilence among my people if my people who are called by my name if they would just humble themselves and if they would just pray, if they would just seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven and I'll forgive their sins and heal their land. As you sign off, if you're with a group of people, would you pray that prayer with the people you're with? Would you turn to God and ask him to heal your land? Would you turn him and and ask him to humble you, humble me, humble us as a body of believers that he might heal his people? God's not calling the world, us to call the world to repentance without us first repenting ourselves. It has to start with the house of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, We are your people, and we are jacked up. We are engaged and steeped in tribalism. We are experts in identifying the sins of every tribe we are not a part of. (sighs) Would you forgive us for our arrogance? Would you forgive us of our pride? Would you forgive us of our idolatry? Lord, we confess that the situation we are in in 2020 is due in large part because of the sins of our ancestors. But it's also due to the fact that we have failed to acknowledge that. And we have demanded that uh, we not suffer the consequences of what our grandfathers did. But Lord, that is not biblical. For the sins of the fathers are visited the third and the fourth generation. So we acknowledge that sin. We confess it to you. And God, give us wisdom like young King Josiah to find the cultural idols that are in our day and rip them down. And Lord, forgive us of our tribalism, our white evangelical conservatism as being the most important thing. When you have us under one banner, one tribe, you have united all people in Christ under the banner of your, our Savior, Jesus. Forgive us for our segments and our factions within the body of Christ. Give us humble hearts, Lord. Help us to think biblically 
and to love, love with passion as the Holy Spirit pours out his love into our hearts. Thank you for making us new creations in Christ. Lord, make everything new, including your church. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless. Go in grace. We'll see you next week.